You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I waited a day, didn't want to do it on opening day or what was supposed to be home opener here in Philadelphia, uh, but I waited um, for the people and just out of respect for what's going on. Look, we all miss the game. We all miss sports. We're all staying hopefully relatively safe um, and, you know, our thoughts with everyone. But, again, I'm here to entertain. And so today I got you a good guest. Stay tuned. Ruben Amaro Jr. up with me next right here on Pine Tower for Breakfast. In the air to left field. What up? And welcome to another episode of Pine Tar for Breakfast. I'm your host, Kevin Franzen. And look, we are all trying to do our part. And our part is staying home. So while you're staying home, thanks for listening to Pine Tar for Breakfast and our next interview. Let's bring him on, Ruben Amaro Jr., former Phillies player, former Phillies assistant GM, former Phillies GM, and literally just a Philadelphia native, Ruben Amaro Jr. Rube, what's up? Kevin, good to hear from you, my friend. Uh, how are your mentals today? <laughs> uh, fair to Midland. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'll tell you that the, the uh, and I mean, everybody's going through this, right? Yeah. But my uh, the, the beauty of uh, of this for me is having the opportunity to spend some time with my two daughters who are typically not around, nor am I during this time of the year. And um, even though they get a little frustrated probably with having to hang with their dad, yeah, <laughs> um, it's nice to be able to have to, to, to spend some time with them. So that's been neat. Well, that that's the one thing that, you know, through this coronavirus and, and everyone staying at home and doing their thing is I feel I thought I thought people would be getting frustrated by now, and I think there is a level of frustration just from being coked up. But I'm finding more stories about people just enjoying family and just I I look at my phone, and you know, like every week you get that you know what is your uh, usage like, and I feel like the last two weeks especially it's gone down, and it's like you're twenty you're using it twenty five percent less, and I'm going dang. That's awesome because that means that I'm spending more time with my wife and my daughter just going nuts. <laughs> right, right. I think that's, I mean, that's one of the a positive residual, right? And I think mm-hmm. that at the end of the day, I think the families are going to realize how important they are to each other. They either do one thing, they'll find out how important they are to each other, or they'll be at each other's throats. <laughs> it's not going to be or. any in between. Right? Yeah, that, that's the best part. I mean, that's. <laughs> That's like a 10 a.m. game in the minor leagues. You're either going to get four knocks or you're going to get no knocks. I mean, it is not. there's no in-between. There's no salvage day, right? I mean, there's literally – you go to the field, you go, okay, it's, it all depends on this first at bat. Whatever happens, yeah. happens. And the, and the other only good thing about that is that you get to have dinner at home, right? <laughs> this is true. This is <laughs> at so a normal, true. At a normal time, almost a nine-to-fiver. <laughs> hey, so, for for you, um, I I – you know, we got to talk a lot this, uh, you know, spring training. And I asked you a lot of questions about, like, the management side, and, and, and I have to ask you. We could talk about playing days and everything, but in a case like this where every team, every, you know, whether it's in baseball or, or football, whatever, everything, leadership matters. And being on that leadership side, the GM side, have you put yourself in the shoes of like Matt Clintac or, or other GMs going, how would I have, you know what I mean? Cause there's, there's so many unknowns in this. What does this, what is this like? It is a fascinating era. I mean, on so many levels, but mm-hmm. uh, in, 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 in our small baseball world, right. The professional baseball world, it is uh, it's really, truly amazing. There's so many residual things that, have, that, that, that uh, you have to kind of think about. It's not just, well, are we going to play the season? Mm-hmm. There's, um, there are all types of, 
I don't know, all the things that are going to be affected by this, you know, are, are, are the players going to be ready? Are they taking care of themselves? Is, what are the, what is the scheduling like? How are we going to prepare them? Uh, what can we do? What innovatively can we do to you know, help keep them prepared? How much uh, contact should we have with them? Um, how can we help them? There's, uh, you know, I've been asked by uh, by the Toronto Blue Jays to talk to some of the kids who are stranded, quote unquote, stranded in in uh, in Dunedin right now, who can't get back to Venezuela, just to spend time and and to try to, you know, spend some time with them in in a positive, uh, in a positive way. There's so many different things. You know, there might be some guys in there. <clears throat> either in their academies or in Clearwater for the Phillies where, you know, these kids are there and they don't have anything to do, but just to sit around. And how do we, how do we make this a productive time for them? There's so many things that, that, I mean, this is where you really, you're really relying on your people, right? You're relying on your people to come up with some ideas and some, uh, some thoughts and, and, uh, and to help you through this process because it's unprecedented, right? Yeah, and they, and they're looking at you. They look at a GM. They look at right. someone that's leading, and, and they're because everyone's in question. And you're just trying you're trying to steer everyone in the right way. And and you brought up the point and something that I feel like we don't get to talk about enough is the Latin American players. And in a situation like this, some can't go home, and doing that, like I, I can't even fathom that. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's got to be it's already difficult for them to, yeah. to have to be dealing with, you know, you're talking about 17, 18, 19, 20 year old kids who, <clears throat> who are basically away from home, away from their countries. In some cases, probably, um, I mean, their quality of life may be better here, but um, but they're not with their families. And what is happening and what are they doing? And just like any other teenager here in the United States or anywhere around the world, you're you're questioning like what's the next step what happens next and how do we handle this etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think you know just like anything else and it sounds cliche but communication means a lot you yeah. have to try to educate and communicate and i think that's one of the key elements here is to try to when people are just sitting out there everybody's on an island right now right mm-hmm. in their own island and to be able to uh to try to um, and fortunately for us, we have the internet. We have other things to be able to do. We have cell phones, right? Yeah. So the, the, we have the ability to uh, to continue to communicate with people, and and you know to effectively communicate and keep them abreast and let them know that uh, you're thinking about them and that they're important for you, and and uh, that, you know just to try to keep them, you know, emotionally and mentally into this thing, such that they you know they don't start wigging out. I mean, it's a tough position to be in for everybody. Yeah. No, and and it's crazy too to think that. You know, for a GM in that in that sense, like all these things are changing, right? So you this year you get twenty six man roster, and now they're talking about you know the ability that there's going to be uh, an expanded roster when when things start back up if they start back up. <laughs> and, and so, do you have to like do you put yourself in this situation going, I can't overthink everything, I can't go through every scenario, or is it the other way where you try to go every scenario possible? <laughs> And, and you have it all written down. You have it somewhere where you can go to, like, if this happens, this happens, this happens, you know, you got X, Y, Z, you got all contingency plans taken care of. No, I think that, I think it's gotta be the latter. I mean, if you're really a true leader, you're, you're preparing for a lot of different things. I mean, the, the, the advantage that I had is I've lived some of it in 95 when we had the strike, you know, we had a, we had kind of a strike shortened season or a lockout shortened season. And, uh, shoot, I was one of those three guys that, that one of those extra guys. So I, I, I lived through that portion of it. So I had a little bit of an understanding of it because I lived it live, but, um, but as far as preparation and action steps and things like that, um, <laughs> I think that's where you, again, you're relying on your, your, your group of leadership, your leadership group to, um, to prepare for different contingencies, even though. Okay, say we're we start in a, in a month and a half, yeah. Or we start spring training, and and we have you know three weeks or four weeks or whatever the case may be. Okay, let's talk to my staff. Let's talk to our people about how long is it going to take and what we're going to need to do and how many players are going to have to be in camp and how are we going to get them prepared. And um, I think again, that's when you're bringing your leadership group and your coaching staff and your manager and et cetera, et cetera, your people together to. Uh, come up and formulate 
you know, different contingency plans. And uh, um, again, I'm not in that world right now because I'm not affiliated with a club uh, at this particular moment, but there's got to be so many different things oh, that yeah. um, even I've been thinking about as far as, you know, how does, how does the commissioner's office handle this? Yep. How, how did the players association handle this and what, what needs to be done as far as that leadership piece is concerned? Well, the reason why I asked you, it, because like once a player, always a player, right? You, you got that mindset. Yep. But when you get into that realm where you were as an assistant GM, then the GM, that never leaves you that, that side of being able to evaluate and, you know, come up with rosters and, and just movement stuff. Like what, what can we do here and here that, that right. That never leaves. Right. I mean, just like as a player, you know, that the feeling, the feeling of what it's like to, to live this as a player or a coach, um, you know, it doesn't leave you either. So, I mean, the, the thought process is okay. You know, how do we handle this? What, how do we put this together? What, yeah. Uh, wh where can I draw from my past experiences to prepare for this? Is it the, you know, when we were setting playoff rosters, is it when, you know, we were, um, you know, it's whole different types of things that you can hopefully draw upon to be able to, uh, to come up with the, you know, what you hope are decent solutions. But, um, but yeah, I mean, listen, you, you're, you're, uh, you're hoping that, that, that your experience of being able to, um, to move rosters around and to, and to build an organization and to prepare are all part of this process. And that's where I said, you know, you got to really kind of rely on your leadership group to help you through it. Yeah. And look, go into like, go back to your playing days and, and you have, you know, you talked about the 95 and the strike, you guys were able to work out together, whether it was, you know, your buddies, whether it was teammates, whether whatever it may be, you could have some organized type things right now. What would you do? If you had none of no availability for any of those guys, right? It's just you. You can only do that to get into the players now and how they stay prepared. I'm I'm trying to think of ways like I would I'd be throwing tennis balls against the wall and chasing right. after them, or I, I don't even like I'm trying to think of all these different stupid drills that have to occupy your mind. Yeah. So the, obviously the social distancing thing and and the, the unknowns about how we this can be contracted and passed on and stuff like that. That's, that's gotta be part of it. That's, you know, I mean, first and foremost, it's about making sure they take care of their own health and yep. their family's health. Right. And then, you know, beyond that, as far as preparing themselves <clears throat> um, for the season, you know, just like in any other situation, most players, most, not all are living in probably somewhere close during the off season. And now that they've been scattered, um, in areas where they played high school, right, mm -hmm. or college, or one of the, you know, one of those, or they they know people who have facilities, and the hope is that <laughs> if they're privately owned, that you can get in there and maybe grab a friend or a brother or someone or a father or a mother <laughs> to help yeah. you, you know, with soft toss or uh, with long toss or. Um, you know, be able to find innovative ways to keep your legs, you know, strong. Because I think for me, one of the most important parts of this is making sure that the lower half of every single one of these athletes is prepared because that's, that will speed up the process. You know, you get your legs underneath in your core, um, to keep those strong and active so that they're, um, so that the transition and their ability to get back on the field and utilize the rest of their athleticism is is not too far too too badly compromised right yep. so i mean there's and, and then you're talking to all your performance people about oh. how what's best you know what what can they do individually what kind of exercise can they do without weights what kind of uh you know what kind of things can they do um physically to be able to um prepare themselves i mean listen not everybody's gonna have the same facilities not everybody's gonna have the same opportunities um there's got to be this is where the, like, the individual plans uh, and off-season plans become critical, right? Mm -hmm. And the performance people now are so um, advanced. And, uh, and, and, you know, for me, it's about, you know, making sure there's a, there's a plan, whatever facility that particular player might have. You know, you have all of that's, – that's why you have all the performance people that you have, right? You have them assign, you know, you assign 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 players mm -hmm. and – Listen, you stay on those guys, you monitor them, that sort of thing, and, and aid them in any way you possibly can to get them, you know, at least keep them active yeah. so that when it's time the bell rings that they can, they can hit the ground running, so to speak.
Well, I, I mean, it gets you thinking about so many things because there's there's players that come in, they may have worked out, but they're out of shape, and you work all sure. spring training to get you know back into shape, and you're just I, I feel for the strength and, and condition for all the training staff, you know, guys because they've worked so hard to get to these guys to the point, and now they have to like <laughs> to monitor and monitor from afar, and you're just going, oh man, I can't oh, imagine. It's- very, very difficult. And, you know, and you're talking about, um, you know, and there's, and you know, this as well as anybody, Kevin, when, when you prepare in the off season, there's nothing like actually being on the grass and dirt and mm-hmm. running around and your movements and the things that you do physically are, unless you're actually playing baseball games in the off season, um, unless you're actually doing those activities, I mean, even just base running, you know, making turns and now your body's doing different things. And, and, uh, and you know hitting you're you're now firing at 100 percent instead of you know taking batting practice or what have you at like 78 percent. i mean yeah. it's a whole you're utilizing your body in a totally different way and so i used to i used to remember working out in the off seasons at stanford and thinking well this is gonna be great i'm gonna be fine i'm gonna be perfect <laughs> and then and then i hadn't you know run the bases like but once and i'm then i get to the you know get to camp and i'm like we're we're, we're doing base running drills i'm like the next day i couldn't move and so, I mean, there's all types of different things that you don't typically do when you're working out in the off season that, that, that you know, so, so that you're not really necessarily prepared. And that's, those are the things that I think that those, that, that active stuff that you can do. And, you know, I'm sure there's advancements, um, have been you know exponential since I was a GM even, um, as far as performance is concerned yeah. and for preparation. And I think that, uh, you know, and I'm sure that, many organizations and teams are doing now what's crazy is that uh, you could have just you could have put cleats on spikes on whatever and just stood on the the asphalt right and in the off season and you could have prepared yourself like that because you're absolutely right it's crazy to think that your back kills you from standing around so much during (laughs) no question no question you know it's funny you say that because I even read some uh, in some instances where umpires would just go do that. They would just go and stand <laughs> on a field just so that they can get used to their bodies standing around. And, uh, you know, nowadays, you know, no, none of the pitchers shag anymore now, right? So yep. because they don't want to screw up their backs, they yep. want to get them off the field and none of the pitching coaches want them to shag and blah, blah, blah. But and that used to be, you know, a tool to keep some of the pitchers, um, you know, strong and healthy and in shape. But. But nowadays they want to hey get off your feet get out of there you know because it's it does it puts some strain on you and if you and if you have lower back or, or mid back issues they, they exasperate them right so um you know so it, there there's a lot of different things you can do but you never really think about it until you're actually standing back on the field in spring training in uh, February you're going oh I forgot to do this I forgot to do that one well that see the, the, the one that that gets me when you bring up the umpires you're going okay take it back to the vet days. And everyone talks about how hot the vet turf used to be. I mean, you got umpires standing on hot coals during the the off season. I got to get ready for the vet. Got to get ready, <laughs> right? Right. right. I remember having ice. I remember. I remember having ice bags. Uh, we had these. Uh, Jeff Cooper used to our old trainer used Coop? to put these. Yeah, Coop used to put these. Uh, we used to fill ice um, on like these flat. Um, I guess boxes, half boxes, we used to cut the boxes, and then we after we came off the field, we would literally it's like stand at them, so our feet wow. wouldn't melt. <laughs> yeah, it's rough. Oh my god, it was god. rough. But yeah, but even I mean, you say that um, even for umpires, just standing on turf, yeah. way different from standing yeah. on you know natural natural grass and dirt, right? So uh, it sounds sounds kind of you know remedial, <laughs> yeah. But but it means something. It's and it and it means something to the athletes. So I mean, you got. I, I consider you very, very much like Steve Kerr uh, because you've done everything, right? As far as the realm, the playing, the coaching, the the management side. Uh, I'm sure at some point in your life you'll do some broadcasting. Who knows? Uh, but it, it for me, I feel like so you could talk about so many different things in so many different ways from different vantage points. The coaching fa- vantage point. How different was that for you? Yeah, you know, I uh, when I got the call from uh, John Farrell asking if I had any interest uh, in Boston after I was let go in Philly, um, and hearing from Dave Nabrowski then, um, 
I mean, the, my juices started to flow. I was like, oh, my God, I got to get my uniform back on. I get to put my <laughs> uniform on. And then I thought, oh, wait, what are you thinking, man? You're 40-something years old. There's no way. You got to lose about 25 pounds. You got you to tighten it up. You hit fungo. This was the last time I hit a fungo. So I started to throw BP. Um, it was exciting. I think, um, you know, anytime you can put a uniform on and, and be – part of a major league organization particularly an organization like the boston red sox for me they were <clears throat> you know a storied franchise lots of tons of history oh yeah i i you know one of the concerns i had after leaving philadelphia was you know how was i going to be treated as an employee as a person because in philadelphia i was treated like family mm-hmm. and so i did a lot of research i talked to terry francona who had who is now you know in cleveland i talked to gary a good friend of mine gary DeSarcina, who had worked Boston who I played with with the Angels and you know they were like hey this is a great place to play or a great great place to work um they really take care of their employees you know if you really get this opportunity you should really seriously consider it and and uh, and I thank those guys for giving me the opportunity to uh to look at it in a in a really broader sense but I mean listen I had to try to legitimize myself to the players so my very first thing was like I don't even, number one, I don't even know if these players know who I was. Yeah. Um, and number two, they're probably thinking, this guy's a GM now. He's going to coach me. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, and, and so, uh, it was funny cause I built a pretty cool, uh, relationship with some of the guys, I think. And, and, uh, and I remember getting once, once I took the job, getting all the outfielders numbers and, uh, and calling guys like, uh, CY Chris Young and, uh, who had been a veteran and guys like uh, Mookie and Jackie and the others, um, just to connect with them and make sure that I was there for them and was going to learn, you know, I basically told, especially in CY's case, I'm like, Hey dude, I'm probably going to more, learn more from you about this job than, than, um, than you're going to learn from me. So, um, I think just building that rapport was important and, uh, and I really enjoyed that, you know, being able to do that again. I mean, you always think about when you're a player, like with as little talent as I had, <clears throat> you always think about, <laughs> how you might be able to help people and, and how you might be able to impact people. I sat on the bench for a lot of teams. I remember being on the bench when Manny Ramirez, you know, really started to make his move in Cleveland and playing with him and just trying to put my arm around him, talk to him and mentor him in some way and way, shape or form. Cause I was an older guy. Um, and just to be able to do that. I mean, it, it, to me, uh, I found great joy in trying to impact those players and just give them some piece of information or something that they could grasp that might help them be a better player in some way, shape, or form. I don't know. I don't know how effective I was at doing that, but um, but it was certainly something that I uh, had a passion for and was excited about doing. Well, I mean, you th- you you bring it up, and and I'm I'm not going to say we were the same, but I mean, relatively, our careers are they mirror yeah. each other. Uh, yeah. And and the way I look at it is, look we're big leaguers for a reason number one number two we don't go from you know one organization to another if you're if they don't like you that that's another part uh and you draw a lot of experience from some bad experience right some some negatives and some of the greatest players in the game can't teach because why because they never failed they didn't understand that and i feel like a lot of the things that you could you could talk about are Stuff that you learned from from making the mistakes, you've made them. Great, great point. Um, you know, we, we we you know we lived them. I was I probably was outrighted five, six, eight times. You know, I I get it. I understand that. Uh, um, you know, I had to kind of struggle through to to get to the big leagues and to make any kind of mark at all. And and um, and I think when you go through those experiences and you play for good teams and bad teams mm-hmm. and great managers and not so great managers uh, i think you end up learning a lot if you're truly impassioned by the game and you really want to learn and understand and which i always did because i grew up in the game and i just loved it um you know you get to learn a lot about how how things you feel things should work and how things should go and you you know and uh like i said i mean it ends up giving you the um i mean i think it broadens your uh your thought process on you know, how to do things a little bit better and how to improve in certain ways. And, you know, it's not, it's not a perfect or exact science, but, um, but at least living through those experiences, I think that they help a lot. And, and I'm sure it's helped you in your, in your process as you, you know, transition now to being, you know, 
to be to broadcasting there, you know, your knowledge about things like that, uh, your insight um, and the things that you learn in the game. I think all those things and the experiences you had will impact, you know, your thought process and the way you express it. Well, I, I paid attention. I watched, I, I would sit on the bench and watch the games or I'd play, you know, it, and I'm always observing and I would go out early and I'd watch, you know, pitchers throw bullpens or I'd catch them just cause I felt like I was doing something productive and I'm learning that way. Uh, but I, I coached a high school team uh, right after I stopped playing with my college coach. Uh, he had retired and was bored. So he started, you know, coaching a, a high school team, got involved and I had so much fun, but like, I didn't talk to the guys like, yeah, I hit homers off this guy and this guy. I was like, no, I, but I, I went off and, and talked about how much the struggle is real and the struggle is real. Well, that's where we're going to, we're going to talk to you about and right, not to right. make those same mistakes. I don't care if it was at a certain level, like those mistakes could be made at the high school level at, in the little league and all that stuff. And it's so all those experiences, whether good or bad, the bad ones teach so much more. Yeah, there's a there's a whole lot of uh, opportunities to to uh, to learn and to teach when when guys fail. I remember it, it, uh, very specifically. I remember Mookie Betts was in a streak at one point. I mean, he's one of the best, maybe the best base runner I've ever been around. Really, as far as just awareness. Oh, tremendous! And, and you Even know, over no, Chase. No, no, no disrespect uh, for Chase or Dave Hollins, who I, and Scott Rowland, who to me were absolutely phenomenal. But Mookie Betts instinctively was um, as good a base runner as he could ever. And I, I got to live it because I was in the dirt with him. But um, but he had not been picked off or thrown out and then a base stolen base attempt by a le- with a left-handed pitcher on the mound uh, at first base f- forever. Like, I think he had like 45 out of 45 straight. And he had never been picked off in his major league career or something like that. And I'm looking at him going, if you're a real base stealer, man, you got to get picked off. And he's like, I'm not getting picked off. I said, just blame it on me. I said, just blame it on me. If you want to, you know, if you want to really be a cat burglar, man, you got to get picked (laughs) off every once in a while. And, uh, and I don't think he even got close to getting picked off, but I used to tell him all the time. I think, I think one time he finally did get picked off. Um and he's looking at me and I go good I was like clapping and you're for celebrating him. Like, that's okay, that's okay. I'm <laughs> celebrating I go, listen dude that's not gonna affect this game where you're it, it, uh, it's gonna it may may elevate your game and so um so the, you know all those are teaching points right failure mm-hmm. creates a teaching teaching uh, opportunity and um, and you know it's it it was fun to watch all those guys continue to develop I mean I had. Our outfield was ridiculous. We had Ben Attendee, Jackie Bradley, and and Mookie and Wright. And I mean, as a coach, you're like, let's just not screw this up, okay? Now. <laughs> <laughs> Let those guys play and not screw it up. I'll just clap here. Um, yeah, exactly. You guys go play, and I'll and I'll try to suck it up a little bit. It's so funny you bring the the, the base running thing up, and so I was gonna. It was part of the the question I was gonna ask as a you know coach, um, as a GM. I played with. I feel like two of the best instinctual base runners in my life in chase and Jason worth. And you were yep. around both of them quite a bit. Uh, yep. And so now I'm like, what now you bring up Mookie Betts? Okay. So if you were to, if you were to rank your top five uh, and, and Dave Hollins in the, in that, would it be those four guys? Would they would, you know, one of those guys be off that list? I mean, cause instinctually I love this part of the game, the base running side. Um. Yeah, I mean it's so underrated, right? And mm-hmm. and yet it and yet wins so ball games. It's, it's yet so important. We've had this discussion about how how important this is and how much you know. I, I mean, I took a lot of pride in this, and 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 as a GM, I thought this was one of the most important things and the distinguishing element of <clears throat> how you distinguish your organization from others. But that said, that's a that's a that's another long discussion. But <clears throat> um, as far as um, instinct is concerned i think you know mookie and uh dave hollins and um chase utley have got to be towards the at or at the top of the ticket i think uh i think roland's up there as far as his aggressiveness um there's so many good ones and um, he was huge yeah no no he was, a, he was like a, he looked like an octopus out there. he's just, just gigantic you know uh great athletes um, but when you think about <clears throat> when you think about some of the names that I just threw out there, you know, and Jason Worth was outstanding as well. Um, very, very good 
uh, I'm very instinctive, great athlete. I mean, this guy is originally a catcher. I mean, <laughs> with the Pat Gillick, I think, uh, drafted him. And uh, that shoot, that was why we got him. Because um, Pat had known him as an athlete um, and his background. I mean, his whole family is just incredibly athletic. So, <clears throat> but, um, but uh, you know, these are big, tall, long legs. Some of these guys are big. I'm Mookie, not so much, but the other guys are. But they're not all the fastest runners no. in the world. Um, but they were really, really good, aggressive, intelligent, knowledgeable baser. Jimmy Rollins, I can't, you know, I got to say Jimmy because Jimmy was tremendous as well. So he's got to be, uh, he's got to be one of the guys in that process and in that discussion as well because Jimmy was just absolutely spectacular base runner and a, and a very intelligent player. Um, you know, uh, Lenny Dykstra was a great mm-hmm. base runner, very, very instinctive base runner. Um, there's a whole slew of them, but um, that I got a chance to be around. But it, um, it's fun to watch, and it's a, it's not necessarily a skill that you can teach. I think you can improve upon it, mm-hmm. but it, instinctively, there's certain guys that just, just like in any other parts of their game, they can do things that are different than other players. Now, can you make players aware of it? Can you make them make it be an important part of their process and their growth? Yes. But, um, but I think in in a lot of ways it was just, you know, these guys just had baseball knowledge that was off the charts. Yeah. No. And then sometimes you try to match it up as a player and you're like, yeah, I can't do that. It probably, probably should have, probably should have held up right there. (laughs) I don't, I don't have that skill set. No, no. (laughs) I, I just I, I think about like after you know post tearing my Achilles and it wasn't like a speed burner but I had you know good wheels before uh, mm-hmm. instinctually was there everything was there it just I didn't match up with it afterwards right I, I always thought of one speed instead of realizing the reality and you're going you are not that again like, <laughs> and it never it yep. never left because that aggressive side right like the great base runners are aggressive they are smart they're aggressive. You don't teach an instinctual player to be aggressive. I feel, feel like that's always ingrained in them. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think now as I'm thinking about you know some of the guys that have played over the years. Uh, Juan Pierre was a great oh. base runner. I thought Juan Pierre was a great base runner not just because of his speed, but he worked on it. Oh, dude. I remember having a Amazing. discussion. I remember I remember having a discussion with um, Shane Victorino about his legs because that was a, a, an integral part of his ability to to um, to be a you know, a quality major league player was his speed in his legs. I remember having that discussion with him, you know, watch, do me a favor and watch Juan Pierre when he gets ready, when he's in Miami. I mean, you talk about working on his speed and, and, you know, if you, if you, you know, if you don't use it, uh, you'll lose it. He used to do sprint work before every game, even in Miami when it was a thousand degrees out there and there was no dome back then. And would continue to work on his speed and continue to work on his jumps and do all types of things pregame, even when he was a veteran, long after he had already gotten, you know, shoot 500 stolen. I don't know how many he ended up with. but um, And I used to tell uh, Shane, hey, man, take a look at that guy, because that guy's not losing his speed until until father time catches up to him. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he worked at it, you know, and it's just something just like anything else. It's a skill that is not all that popular now to, to work on, but it can be a, a real difference maker for teams um, who really want to have a lot of success. Right? Like the one thing that when you brought over Juan Pierre and, and just to see him work on a yeah. day in day out basis, the, the, the how meticulous he was in bunting and people go, Oh, bunting should be right. outlawed in the game. It's like, no, that guy made a living off of, of doing things that no one else has done. Uh, and, and, I mean, that bunt that he would do, he perfected the one towards shortstop, right? <laughs> that you're going, who would do that? Well, Juan Pierre did because he practiced it all the time. Like, th- that skill is obviously gone away, right? I mean, that we're right. not going to see that. But it, does it take you back to those days with having Juan and being going, man, that guy, he never took a day for granted of who he was as a player. Uh, it's a great point because um, when you think about Juan Pierre and Otis Nixon and guys who just, you know, if they didn't have, you know, Brett Butler, if those guys didn't have that in their toolbox, they they weren't major league players. But mm-hmm. they made themselves quality major league players because they utilized their – they maximized their ability to do what they can do, right? Yep. And so 
Um, I mean, those are the guys that as a player like myself, who was limited, <laughs> limited uh, talent wise, um, I wish I would have been even, I wish I would have been as meticulous as them. I remember Brett Butler coming up to me in 92 when I was having a horrendous year. I could not buy a hit. And Brett was like, I know you can bunt. I heard you could bunt. You should do it in the minor leagues. How come you're not bunting now? I'm like, you're right. You're right. I should bunt. So we need to work on it every single day. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I should. <laughs> and I kick myself, you know, I kick myself. And, and unfortunately is not as important a part of the game as it, um, as it once was because people are try, trying to do other things with the ball uh, offensively now. But I mean, listen, if you're don't have the ability to drive the ball out of the ballpark and you have great speed or not even great speed, but you have, you know, good eye hand coordination, then, Maybe it's a skill set that you should try and work on, and and uh, it can, a pop, uh, and it's probably not all that popular these days. It can um, help you win baseball games. Absolutely, and it, <laughs> it can help your mind. Like you're you're looking for a yeah. knock, just to get a knock, just to just something yeah. for the confidence to go up, just for your mentals. You got to have it. Well, well, it's <laughs> funny you should say that because I'm not sure. And this is where things have gotten a little sideways. I'm not sure if just getting a hit is all that important anymore. And now, for me. And that's BS. You know what I mean? Well, like, yeah, right, right. I agree with you. But but hits do mean something. It doesn't yeah. matter whether it's a single, double, or triple, or a homer. For me, hits do mean something because that affects the whole flow of the game, right? Um, uh but again, that's not sexy these days, and that's not the thing to do. And uh, but not everybody's given, you know, as God given some of the ability to to do other things. And if you're given a specific ability, and God gives you the ability to have some speed and some coordination, why not take advantage of it? Why not? All right. So why not take advantage of this opportunity with Ruben Amaro Jr.? Do you want to play waffle or not? I'll play it. Yes. I'm not sure nice. I, I should know it. Of course. All right. So waffle or not, uh, I'm going to throw out a pitcher, and you're going to tell me if you waffled him or no. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Trust me, okay. I played this game with myself, and it did not turn out well. All right. So, Is there somebody I actually waffled? Oh, come on. Really? Uh, we know that you know this. I, I can name one. I, I know, right, and I know yep. the name that you're going to bring up, so we're going to keep that. we're going to keep that later, okay? I'm going to start out with like a childhood. Uh, I'm not going to say idol, but someone I loved with the Giants and Billy Swift. Swifty. I hit, I know I hit one really, really far home run off of Billy Swift. And it was in Candlestick. And I can't believe I did it to this day. I think it was a hanging stinker. Whoa. Uh, right. I don't know if I, I don't know if I waffled him, but I, I know I got at least one hit off of him. I oh, think. Okay, Ruben, here you go. In 1992, you went two for two against him with a homer and a triple. And then in 97, you faced him again and you walked. You waffled his A. Yes, you did. Um, well, that's so, good. Billy Swift had a filthy sinker, but it was, dude, better, was awesome. better for me hitting left handed against him because those righties didn't like to face that sinker. Ooh. Greg Maddox. Well. Did not fare well against him, but I had one, I think I was like one for 13 or something like that. But I think I walked a couple of times and he drilled me a few times. He didn't like me too much, but he, um, he, he didn't, he, he didn't walk did. you. <laughs> oh, he didn't, he never walked me. No, but he drilled he you me. twice. Maybe he hit me. He drilled me twice. Okay. Twice. So, so I had a great, you remember Ed, Eduardo Perez, I think caught him for a little while. Uh, Eddie Perez, a different Eddie from uh, the Venezuelan, yep. uh, Eddie Perez. He, um, he actually, towards the end of my career, he used to tell me after the games when I had played with him in Venezuela, he said, you know what? Greg Maddox hates you. I said, why? He said, because now <laughs> you actually make him work to get you out because he used to get you out like easy money, you know, a little you yeah. know, front door sinker and then a little change up, a little spitball, whatever he was he was throwing, you were out. But he, um, I actually had some decent battles with him. I think I may have gotten one hit, maybe one hit against him. Uh, you had two hits against oh, him. Oh, there you go. Yeah, you're bad. I did not walk him. Two uh, for like 400. <laughs> uh, two for 12. Two for 12. Okay. There but, I mean, look, you got an RBI off him. 
So you're doing something <laughs> yeah. there. You're like you had a you're good probably positive. Upset about that. <laughs> so I faced. I think I was over. I, I know I was over four against Greg Maddox. Uh, I lined out the third. I lined out the short. I lined out the second. And I swear to God, he knew that, and he he pitched one. He he set up this one at bat for me to line out to first. And I lined out to first. He was with the Padres. You could hear him chuckling afterwards. Like going, are you serious? Like, that, I went over four with four lineas against this guy. Like, it sucks. Yeah, he, he – uh, that does suck because when you hit balls – I did. I had the same thing happen to me with uh, with Smoltzy. Um, I hit like three or four line drives right at Andrew Jones. And, you know, when you hit one up the middle, you know, dead center field and you're hitting it right on the screws, you're right on them, right? But yep. you know, nothing but outs. But – these guys are so bright and so intelligent, and I, I guarantee you that he, that Greg Maddox, remembered every single sequence of your at bats against him. He probably remembered everything, and you probably, like you said, Absolutely. only faced him four times, right? Abs- That's like, it's it. He never sweated, right? I mean, he was doing whatever no. he's doing, but he was so he. When people talk about being a pitch ahead and all that stuff, he was like four or five pitches ahead. No like, question. <laughs> it's like no really, question. that's that's he, real fun. I tell you, I would love. First of all, I did not like facing him, but I loved watching him pitch, oh, and yeah. I um, it was frustrating for me because we were, you know, against him all the yeah. time, watching for the, all these years with the Cubs and with the Atlanta. But um, but what a joy to watch him work and to set set people up and and to just go about his business in such a calm, calculating way. Just amazing. Just amazing. All right, we're going to continue on here. Uh, Mark Clark. Clarky. Yep. I think I took Clarky deep, too, in St. Louis. Yes, you did. I played with Clarky. I, 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 uh, I know Clarky very well. Um, he actually had a pretty darn good year for us, uh, eating up innings and keeping us in games, and won a bunch of games, like 14 or 15 games, I think, one year in Cleveland when I played with him. I think that was either 94 or 95. might have been 95. Anyway, um, but I had a couple of pretty decent days against him, I think, as I recall. I did uh, okay. Four for seven. So I think it's... Double Ooh. homer. Yeah. Ooh, 1698 okay. OPS. That's waffleage. Well, he was throwing it into my barrel, probably. No, no. That just <laughs> that's straight ownage. Like you, you have to like take that one and go, uh that that that's me. That's all me. Um, uh, okay, I got a couple more for you. Uh okay. and this is this is one of my favorite ones because of who it is. Dwight Gooden. Yeah, I don't know why I, I, for some reason, I saw the ball good out out of his hand, and he was just filthy. I mean, <laughs> I remember one game, I think I got two or three hits against him, and uh, they were all on like different pitches. He threw me like a changeup, I got a hit a double. I, he threw me a hook one time, I got a base hit. I, you know, I think I got a double off another pitch, like a fastball or something. It was, and he I, actually one of the coolest things about that was I think that particular day, I don't know why. Um, but my last base hit against him, I think it might have been a changeup or something, and I took it the other way. And I get the second base, and he looks over at me, and he gives me kind of one of these looks, and he takes off his cap, and he just tips it to me. Oh, I love it. And I thought, I thought, that was the single coolest thing I've ever seen somebody do. That's awesome. Um, when, when Dwight Gooden tips your cap, yeah. tips his cap to you, I mean, like, dude, Really? And that's when you know. That's honestly, awesome. there 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 are moments there are moments in your career where you you know that 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 make you think about um, some of your accomplishments and things things that you know. It's such a negative game, right? Yep. So um, there was a lot of struggles for me in the early part of my career in ninety ninety two and and uh, oh ninety three was a pretty good year, but there was a lot of struggles, especially particularly my my rookie year in Philly, and for me to have um, had some success and made you feel like, you know what? I, I, I really was a big leaguer. We share that experience because like I, yeah. I got up to the big leagues really, 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 really fast. And I never really had the, uh, the, the negative, you know, the, the, the slump or whatever in the minor leagues. So I didn't know really right. what was coming. And when it happened right. in the big leagues, man, that snowballed really fast. And it, it like, no it, trying to get catch your breath you're just like oh my god this is this is horrible this is the worst thing i've ever been through and it's because it's exaggerated at the big league level yeah no question i mean um 
we, you know, we probably went through similar, uh, you know, I, it took me a little longer than, than it did you. I probably took four and a half years for me once I signed, but, <clears throat> but at that point in my last two or three years of minor league baseball, I mean, you know, the numbers were really, really good. And so mm-hmm. you had, you had gotten to this point where you established yourself as like a really good offensive player. And then I got to the big leagues in 92 and all of a sudden it's, or more, uh, actually made the club. I was in the big leagues in 91, but in 92, when I made the club in Philadelphia, <clears throat> you know, now they're starting to exploit you in a way that you've never been exploited before. Now it's a hook and then it's mm-hmm. a change up and it's this. And I'm like, mom, I'm coming home. They're throwing me breaking balls. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm coming home. They're throwing me change ups. They never did this to me before, but, um, uh, but it's, it's a struggle. And I remember going through, especially when I was at home, I was, this is my hometown, you know, hometown team. And, I was supposed to be loving playing there and I just couldn't get my footing until late in the season. And it took me a long time to really, you know, realize, you know what, you're okay. Life's not going to, you know, yeah. it's not going to be the end of the world. You're going to, you're going to be okay. And try to, you know, you know going through that, that, that mental roller coaster was, was, uh, was a tough process that, that we all had to go through. Yeah. I mean, that's another similarity. Or not all of us, but some of yeah, us. Yeah, Mike Trout didn't do it. Mike, no, Mike no, didn't not it. at all. Well, actually, you could te- you could technically say his first time up in the big leagues, he he didn't do that great, you know. So uh, he, you know, for us, we share that uh, being in San Francisco, you know, playing at home wasn't the easiest of things. You just don't, you know, no. people don't really well, understand no. that because there's more pressure on that you're putting on yourself uh, for so many things. So, you know, I always look at it with me with the opportunity when I got brought up in July of 2012 by you, uh, that was the first time I really, really, really appreciated the call up because I got up there so fast, like nothing, everything was just kind of all on the rise. Right. And, and you don't really understand what the grind was. And I finally hit that grind in, in 11, uh, most of 12. And to get that call, I was like, this is the cool, like that, I wish I had that feeling early on, right? I mean, right. It, well, I to mean, appreciate you, it. You probably went through the process thinking, oh, this is how it's supposed to work. You know, yeah. I'm supposed to get this. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to play here a couple of years, and I'll be in the big leagues, and I'll be good to go. Um, and, uh, you know, when you go through struggles, you have a level of appreciation. You know, it's uh, major leagues is heaven, and uh, the minor leagues are hell. Yeah. And so that becomes – that becomes a little bit of a mantra for you, but um, but you're certainly much more appreciative of uh, of the opportunities that you get because they could be fleeting. Right? No doubt, no doubt. All right, last one. I'm sorry for taking so much time, but this is fun. All right, <laughs> we're going to Penn Charter School. Oof. Mark Gubaza. Gubaza's on with me this week, and I didn't realize, <laughs> and I totally forgot. I was like, oh my god, this is Penn Charter Week. Here we go. Yeah. So did you yeah. waffle him or not? So I think I got two knocks off of him in my, um, I think it might've been my very first, no, no, it was probably my second or third start of my baseball career. It was in 91. And at that point, Goob was not the Goob that was in like 1989 because I think he got hurt once mm-hmm. or twice. Um, but my old Penn Charter teammate, uh, I don't know. He was being nice to me, but I got my very first double and my, I think it was my very first double extra base hit and my very first RBI. I think I got two hits off him, two for three, maybe. Yes, two. sir. Yes, sir. Um, and I think I remember him being really pissed off. He took me out to dinner that <laughs> night <laughs> and you know, he was only an established guy, but he took me out to dinner that night. That was nice. And he said, you're, you're like, I didn't enjoy your ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, uh, Goob, what a, what a supremely wonderful, uh, person and, um, competitor and, um, professional, just a really, really good guy. And for me, I mean, you know, you think about, you know, you've had good success against Duke Gooden and, you know, this guy and the other guy, but for me to have gotten a couple of knocks off of that guy. That's awesome. Um, who was who was I guess at some point was the most highly rated player in the game for a couple of years when he had a couple of unbelievable seasons in in, in Kansas City. I think that he was the most higher highest rated player in baseball. Wow. And for me to have that, you know, I've gotten my first. I think it was. I think it was literally. I think I got a double off him. But I'm not you sure. You did. I You're think, uh, second was, to bat. Second to bat. Yep, you, uh, Luis Polonia scored. 
Oh, how about that? My very first double, my very first RBI in my career was against Mark Gubasov, which is incredibly, incredibly ironic because we played on the same damn high school team. That's so crazy. Yeah, it's just bizarre. We've all discussed, you know, certain things like playing, uh, you know, maybe one guy off a high school team in like a five, ten year span might make it to the big leagues to have teammates make it to the big leagues is insane. Like I played, I played shortstop. Uh, I played second base, our shortstop. He and I played shortstop second base in triple a with the angels one year. And I'm like, this is, this is nuts. How is this? How how awesome is that? Yeah. I mean, when goob, my, my sophomore year, my sophomore freshman, no, my sophomore year, he was a senior. Um, he started off the season as the everyday shortstop, but then when he pitched, obviously he was on the mound. Uh, I would play short. Well, I started off and had I was playing pretty well, so they kept me at short. And then he would play center field when he didn't pitch, so he switched over to center um, and played to the center. If I remember right, I think that's how it went. Did he have um, fantastic hair then too? He had a great wig. Yeah, tremendous moss. Um, and uh, and you talk about a power sinker, dude. He was throwing like a 90 back then. He was throwing like a 93, 94 mile an hour sinker that <laughs> good luck in the interact trying to touch this guy. Uh, we, I think we went my senior year. I think we went 20 and one. It was like the best team on the planet. And we were just riding his coattails, man. He was awesome. That's so good. Well, Rube, I appreciate you coming on uh pint for breakfast and uh, we'll do it again. Hopefully soon. If you, uh, if you're, if you're not bored, you might be bored and you can do it too. Yeah. Any, any time, man. I enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Appreciate the time with you. Thanks dude. Take care. Now that was fun. And I appreciate Ruben Amaro jr. Former player, former assistant GM, former GM coach. And who knows what's in store for later on with him, but that was fun. And I appreciate you for listening to pie Tar for breakfast. Hey, Let's get some interaction going on Twitter at Kevin Franzen. Hit me up. Any questions? Let's get this thing going. Stay safe. Let's flatten that curve. Peace. Kevin Franzen. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story and one of the best stories is wasabi technology wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams including 20 major league baseball teams like the red Sox and nhl teams like the bruins and vancouver canucks even the liverpool football club is getting in on the wasabi action so why is wasabi the mvp well wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the amazons of the world are charging in fact wasabi is up to 80 percent less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from wasabi's ai enabled intelligent media storage wasabi air to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals data deletion and ransomware wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data wasabi another boston-based championship team